0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, a two-edged sword which pierces and divides and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. As we hear that word preached tonight, would you cut away all falsehood and lies from our hearts? Would you fill us with your word of truth? And would you equip us with everything needed for doing your will? For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. As we be seated. And please open your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 10, Pew Bibles, page 748. Why is it that when you sit down to read your Bible, to focus on the things of the Lord, suddenly your mind is overcome with thoughts about a thousand other things and you cannot focus on the Lord? Or you sit down to pray and all of a sudden you are overcome with a sense of tiredness. Or you can't seem to think about anything besides how hungry you are. Why is it when you're trying to get the kids ready to come to church, all of a sudden battles break out, tempers rise, chaos overcomes you? Why do these things happen? Perhaps you think these things are just the mundane, ordinary struggles of the Christian life. And that may be true, it is These things happen all the time, but there is a deeper reality here, because as you seek to live, seek to serve the one true living God, you are engaged in a war. Each time you seek the Lord in prayer, each time you take up his word to read, each time you seek to obey his will, you are a soldier of Christ on the battlefield. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, in this spiritual warfare, you won't always know where your temptations come from, whether from your own sinful flesh or from heavenly spiritual forces. And while it's an error to overemphasize the role of Satan and his demons, and we'll talk about that a little more later, here in this chapter, we get a small glimpse of the reality of the heavenly spiritual battles that are going on behind the scenes. Here in this chapter, the veil is pulled back even if just a little bit. And this little glimpse ought to encourage us to seek the Lord on our knees and to put on the full armor of God and to engage in the spiritual warfare that the Lord has called us to fight. So we'll begin this morning looking at the introduction and the occasion for this vision as Daniel is mourning and fasting. Verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. This verse introduces us to what will be the final vision in this book, and it dates it to 536 BC. Daniel will now be at least 75, if not perhaps 80 years old. And we're told this word is true, of course. All God's revelation is true. We're also given the theme of the vision to come. Great conflict. And we won't look at the details of the vision in chapter 11 until next time. But I'll tell you right now, this is a very accurate description. Let me just give you a little preview. Last time we looked at the prophecy of the 70 weeks in which God revealed his plan for history leading up to Christ and his sacrifice to make atonement for sin on the cross to bring in everlasting righteousness. That prophecy was not very detailed concerning the 69 weeks leading up to the 70th week of Christ. They were simply described as a troubled time. Well, in this vision in chapter 11, this vision of great conflict, it will fill in those weeks with abundant detail. Next we read in verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Here we see Daniel returns to a diet similar to the one he had adopted so many years earlier, while he was in training to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, eating no meat, drinking no wine, also abstaining from the usual anointing oil, the equivalent of using lotion or a moisturizer today which would have been so necessary in that desert climate we are told what he was we are told that he was mourning but not what he was mourning we get a clue from the fact that this is the third year of king cyrus who had allowed the exiles to return to jerusalem to rebuild the temple in his first year now daniel had not returned with them most likely because of his advanced age you know that he had returned with them in spirit. He is supporting them in his prayers. And now it's the third year. They had had a time by now to return, to build the altar, to begin to worship, and then to lay the foundation of the temple itself. And then this is what we read in Ezra chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah And made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose in all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so the building of the temple has ceased. And it appears now word has come back to Daniel. And he is mourning before the Lord, seeking the Lord fervently in prayer. Now consider the example that Daniel is to us here. He's 80 years old. This is the time in life when many people think, I'm too old to do much for the Lord. I'll just play golf. I'll just watch TV. But Daniel is still pouring himself out in the Lord's service, even doing a sort of fast as he seeks the Lord. And note Daniel's not doing this for himself. It wasn't because he wanted something for his own benefit, but because he wants the Lord's purposes further, furthered. When was the last time you sought the Lord with such fervency that you gave up things that you enjoyed, that you fasted from the good things of life? Now, at the same time, being so old, 75 or 80, he didn't do a water-only fast for 21 years, 21 days. He ate only vegetables. But he gives things up. He is mourning. He salts the Lord's face in prayer. This brings us to part two the vision of a heavenly being. So Daniel comes to the point where he's standing on the bank of the river Tigris, and a glorious heavenly being appears to him. Here's how Daniel describes him, verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphas around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. The description, it overwhelms us just as it overwhelmed Daniel, so let's try to break it down a little bit. First, he's described as a man here in verse 5, although later in verse 16, Daniel says he has the appearance like a son of man, and in verse 18, The appearance of a man as to say he is in the form of a man with a head body arms and legs but clearly all these other attributes all the radiance and the shining this is no ordinary man it's clear that this is at least an angel if not someone greater than an angel next we see he is wearing linen which is the cloth that the priests who entered God's presence were required to wear and so it's appropriate that an angel sent by the Lord would be dressed in linen clothing. He has a belt of the gold of Ufa's nose for its fine gold. And in his body, it's even more striking than his clothing. Like beryl, his precious gemstone. The rest of him is shining, eyes shining like flaming torches, his face flashing like lightning. His arms and legs gleam like burnished bronze, and his voice. Like the sound of a multitude, a roaring voice. All these descriptions that give the sense of radiance and glory pouring off this person. We need to ask the question of identity. Who is this? Who could it be? A name is never given in the passage, so we need to make a determination based on the clues in the text and by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And really, there are two options. One is that this is an unnamed but clearly powerful angel... And the other is that this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Now the reason for that second identification is the strong similarities between the description here and the description of the appearance of our Lord in Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John says he saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters revelation 1:13 through 15 now it's not an identical description but the many similarities certainly stand out now, that's what many commentators believe but there's also a strong counter argument to this identification as we see later in this chapter this figure is withstood by another angel He requires the help of the angel Gabriel in order to complete his task. And that doesn't make sense if this is the Lord Jesus. And so there are also descriptions of the Lord's cherubim, that is the angels who pull his heavenly chariot in Ezekiel 1. And they share the same, very similar descriptions with the figure here. They also have eyes that are flaming like torches, and they also flash like lightning and gleam like burnished bronze. And so, we can also notice that John, who saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he later falls down to worship at the feet of an angel, and he needs to be rebuked and told not to do so. And that just goes to show you how glorious angels can appear And so I've struggled with this question of, is it an angel, is it Jesus? And the commentators are pretty evenly divided between the two interpretations at the end of the day. I've weighed the evidence and I'll have to say, I come down on the side of, I think this is an angel just because of the fact that he has withstood that he can't overcome the prince of Persia for 21 days. But note this, an angel who is sent by the Lord, he represents The Lord, the one he has sent by. And his glorious appearance here reveals a small portion of the Lord's glory to Daniel. And that is what Daniel is seeing in this vision. And so, that is the purpose of the vision. So let's let's consider next Daniel's response as he beholds this glorious heavenly being, this angel. So in verses 7 to 9, we see the physical effects that the angel's visit had on Daniel Daniel and his companions. Daniel alone was able to see and hear him, but those who were with him, they knew something was happening. They were seized by terror. They fled in fear. Daniel also was overwhelmed, so much so that his strength left him. We're told that color drained from his face, made him deathly pale. And then, when he heard the roaring voice of the angel, it says he fell onto his face in deep sleep. I think we could paraphrase that and almost say, he was knocked out cold. From this reaction, you can understand why the first words out of many many a visiting angel's mouth are so often, fear not. Well, see, those are the second words out of this angel's mouth. Um, anyways, the rest of the account, all the way to the end of the chapter, is Daniel's recovering, little by little, from the initial shock and awe of beholding this glorious appearance of the angel. And the angel will need to work to restore Daniel's strength, to prepare him to receive the message that he has brought, the net message we'll see in the next chapter. Now we might ask, why did God have this angel appear in such glory? so as to have such a profound effect on Daniel. Why? It seems that the Lord wanted to remind Daniel of his holiness, of his transcendence, of his glory. As we were reminded just last week by Pastor Alice, the Lord is not like us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts? Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. The Lord is infinitely higher than us, infinitely greater than us. And so the Lord sends Daniel this vision of his servant, and it sends him crashing to the ground. The Lord's purpose wasn't to utterly crush Daniel, simply to remind him. And so the angel doesn't leave Daniel there on the ground. In verse 10, the angel touches Daniel and lifts him up. This restores him to his hands and knees, but he is trembling with fear. Then in verse 11, we read, He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So Daniel now has the strength to stand up on his own. He's made it from down on his face to his hands and knees, and now all the way up to his feet. Then in verse 12, the angel tells him those classic words, those well-known words, that most repeated command in all the scriptures, fear not. And from this point forward, Daniel no longer trembles with fear, but he's still mute. He's unable to speak. So next, the angel touches his mouth in verse 16, And that restores his ability to speak. Now Daniel speaks, but all he says after that is how he still has no strength, no breath left in him. And then finally, the angel touches him one last time to strengthen him in verse 18, saying, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And so with this third and final touch and encouragement, Daniel is finally restored and able to receive the message that the angel has come to bring him. As he says in verse 19, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then the angel proceeds to give Daniel the message he has come to deliver. And so we see this vision of the glory of God even mediated through the angel. It overwhelms Daniel. It strips away all his strength. But then the angel strengthens him, restores him, lifts him back up. Now, let's next look at the mission and the message of the angel, which gives us a profound glimpse into heavenly spiritual warfare. In verse 12, we read, And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Just like we saw last time in chapter 9, the Lord sent his angel to Daniel as soon as he started to humble himself and pray. He says his mission was to come and make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, a vision for days yet to come. And this is exactly what we'll see in chapter 11. Whereas last time, the angel arrived immediately, immediately, just as Daniel finished praying. This time, Daniel continued to fast and to pray for 21 days before the angel arrived. Now here, the angel explains the delay by pulling back the veil on a little bit of the spiritual warfare going on in the heavenly realms. And to understand this, there are several different characters we need to identify. First is the angel's chief antagonist, who's called here the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Since this prince was able to delay the angel, it must refer to another angel. And since he is an evil angel opposed to the Lord and his purposes, he's appropriately referred to as a demon, a servant of Satan. Later in the chapter, the angel speaks of another demon, the prince of Greece, and this clues us in that Satan has strategically organized his forces according to the nations and the territories on earth. These princes are at work to spread Satan's influence among the nations that they serve. Next, we see that as the angel was withstood by the prince of Persia, he was also helped by another good angel, by Michael, who is identified here as one of the chief princes. At the end of the chapter, he's called your prince, and later in Daniel 12.1, he is called the great prince who is, watches over your people, that is, the Jews. In a way, he's the counterpart to the prince of Persia, except he is on the Lord's side, the prince of the Jewish people. Michael also appears twice in the New Testament. He is called the archangel, that is, the chief angel in Jude 1.9. And he's also depicted as leading other angels in the final battle against Satan in Revelation 12.7. There's one final character here to identify. The angel says he was left there with the kings of Persia. This would refer to the human kings. Cyrus, the emperor, and perhaps also his son Cambyses, the crown prince of Persia. Now, What exactly is going on with this delay? Most people read the angel's account here and give a very simple interpretation. Daniel prays. The angel is dispatched with a message. The prince of Persia sets up some sort of spiritual roadblock to keep him from getting through. He's delayed 21 days trying to get through the roadblock until Michael comes with more firepower and he breaks through. But notice which character this interpretation leaves out. This interpretation leaves out the kings of Persia. What do they have to do with it? Here's what I think is going on, and this makes sense of the fact that he returns to the battle, as he says at the end of the chapter. It seems to me that at the time of Daniel's prayer, this angel was already in conflict with the prince of Persia concerning some matter of great import, and it concerned influence over the kings of Persia. And that's why he says he was left alone with them. He was there battling the prince of Persia over the influence of the kings of Persia. He was alone doing battle. And so while he wanted to come and deliver this message to Daniel, he could not abandon his regular post fighting against the prince of Persia concerning influence over the kings of Persia until Michael came 21 days later to relieve him. And then we see in verse 20, that as soon as he is done delivering this message to Daniel, he plans to return to the fray to fight against the prince of Persia again. Now we might ask, concerning, concerning what was the prince of Persia seeking to influence the kings of Persia? Now this isn't something we can know for certain. It's not revealed here in the text. And we know that Satan loves to work to persecute and oppress God's people. And this is perhaps most easily done from the top down. Now, King Cyrus, of all the Persian emperors, had been favorable to the Jews. He had allowed them to return to their land and rebuild the temple. And that was not the case with all the future kings of Persia. You know, the story of Esther set during the reign of King Xerxes, how Haman's plot almost leads to the destruction of the Jews. And it would be very easy for Satan to take one king of Persia to change the policy and to lead to, very, uh, to a great persecution to sweep out against the Jewish people. Now, we don't get to see the veil pulled back very often to see what's going on in this heavenly battle. And I would think that as those plots during the days of Esther were being unwound, were not these very same angels and demons at work behind the scenes engaged in spiritual warfare In light of what we've seen here, let's consider some applications considering your spiritual warfare. In this passage, we get just the merest glimpse of the spiritual warfare that is going on in heavenly places. The veil is pulled back, but really only to a small degree. The scriptures, especially in the New Testament, instruct us very clearly that this battle continues. And because you are in Christ, you are a soldier on this battlefield. And so Paul encourages us in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice that as you engage in spiritual warfare, you cannot do it in your own strength, but in the strength of the Lord, in his might, as Paul says here. You fight on the Lord's side and you do it with his strength at work within you. You also need to know your enemy, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And one of Satan's schemes is to persuade people that he is all-powerful. And therefore, resistance is futile. Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And sometimes Satan wants to blow that up and make it seem that he is that all-powerful lion. So he presents temptations to you as if there's no escaping them. As if you cannot help it. What's the point of resisting? Just give in. These are the devil's lies. There is always a way of escape. Another demonic strategy which has come into some corners of the church is to blame every struggle, every temptation, every failure on the work of demons. If a person struggles with addiction, you say he's possessed with a demon of addiction that needs to be cast out. If a person struggles with anger, he must have a spirit of anger that needs to be cast out. Now it's true that Demons can work great evil within the hearts of men. We need to, at the same time, be careful not to give Satan and his minions too much credit. Not to see Satan behind every bush and around every corner and blame everything on the devil. The answer to this strategy is that though Satan is a roaring lion, Peter goes on to say, resist him, firm in your faith, 1 Peter five nine. Or James four seven, resist the devil and he will flee from you, as we've already seen in Ephesians six. In the Lord's strength we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now Satan's other strategy, and the one I believe we are more likely to fall into, is that Satan likes to hide himself, to act as if he doesn't exist. He carries out his work behind the scenes undetected. He disguises himself as an angel of light and subtly seduces believers into his traps that we don't even notice. It's so easy to get comfortable in this world, to forget that we're even in the midst of a spiritual battle. And so we begin to drift. And I believe that's the tactic that's most effective in the church today, especially the church here in the United States. Satan's strategy is to lull you into complacency. To make you forget all about the Lord and his ways. If you're already trusting in the Lord, Satan knows he cannot snatch you out of the hands of the Good Shepherd. But he can nullify your witness. He can keep you out of the mission field. He can prevent you from doing any spiritual good, bearing any spiritual fruit. We need to fight back against this by knowing that we are engaged at all times in a spiritual battle. Knowing that Satan and his demons are real, they are powerful. But God is greater. And so, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God. And after listing all the items of the armor, he comes to the chain link that holds them all together. And that is prayer. This is the most important element in our spiritual warfare because it is through prayer that we call on the strength of God. We must fight, but the Lord alone is ultimately the one who overcomes all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This evening, we come to the table, the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as we do so, we remember that when Christ went to the cross, he not only made a sacrifice for our sins, he not only atoned for all our sins, he also won a great triumph over Satan and all his demons. Speaking of these evil heavenly spirits, Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him that is in Christ. That is to say that they thought the cross would be their triumph, putting the Son of God to death, but instead it was a great reversal The innocent one died in the place of the guilty, and then death itself worked backwards. He was raised so that we would never die, but have eternal life in him. When Christ conquered sin and death on the cross, he also dealt a death blow to Satan. He crushed the serpent's head, and also to all the fallen angels. And so it's true, they continue to do their wicked work on the earth that their coming doom has been assured. And So as we come to the Lord's table tonight, we celebrate Christ's victory, and we are strengthened to persevere in our spiritual warfare. So let me encourage you. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, the all-glorious one, the one who answers the prayers of your people. You answered Daniel as he mourned and revealed your strength and your power to him. And you know our struggles and our trials and temptations, and we come to you and we seek your strength and your power. We rejoice in Christ who disarmed the rulers and authorities who put them to open shame on the cross. And we pray that you would fortify us against all the lies of the devil, that you would strengthen us and help us to walk in all your ways and to win victory in the spiritual battle that you have called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.